Ever since the invention of moving pictures, Hollywood has had to deal with productions that go south. No, not to Mexico. South, as in horribly wrong, sometimes tragically. Someone then whispers the phrase that the production is cursed. And, just like saying someplace is haunted, and another person upon hearing that phrase says the same thing, it starts to generate as truth. The dilapidated house on the corner near the woods is haunted. And the production that ran over budget, had electrical fires, and had cast members die off in the middle of filming is cursed. There are numerous films that are stigmatized as having a curse, but none so much more famous as the film that sparked a trilogy starting in 1982. The house looks just like the one next to it. And the one next to that. And the one next to that. A young couple live in it. Give Ken a kiss. <laughs> you are so unlucky. With their three children. <laughs> and something more. This is Unsolved Mysteries of the World, Season 3, Episode 7, The Poltergeist Curse. The Poltergeist Curse is perhaps the most famous of curses because it not only implicated the cast and crew of one movie, but three, and perhaps even the 2015 remake. So let us dive into the movie, learn some things about its production, the essence of the curse, and its legend. During research on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, director Steven Spielberg also read spiritual, religious, and paranormal material related to the subject of extraterrestrials and UFOs. He was fascinated by the idea that perhaps UFOs and the beings said to visit Earth 
were not exactly alien. He felt that the phenomenon was more spiritual in nature, and this led him to read more on the subjects that often crossed paths. One such book he read was Life After Life, written by Dr. Raymond Moody. The book reports and draws careful conclusions from the out-of-body experiences of people who revived from clinical death or from near death, regained consciousness, and is a pioneering study of what happens in the afterlife. From this book, he began to read about ghost stories and the paranormal in general, becoming intrigued with the study. Spielberg also loved history and was inspired by an actual occurrence in Denver, Colorado. In the late 1800s, when Denver was expanding, there was a dilapidated graveyard where the city government wanted to put in a grand city park like the one in New York City and the cities across the country sought to emulate Central Park. They wanted a bandstand, a new city hall, government buildings, and other real estate endeavors. On January 25, 1890, Congress authorized the city to vacate the cemetery and rename the area Congress Park. Families were then given 90 days to remove the remains of their departed to other locations. Those who could afford to began to transfer the bodies to other cemeteries throughout the city. Due to the large number of graves in the Roman Catholic section, Mayor Bates sold the 40-acre area to the Archdiocese, which was named the Mount Calvary Cemetery. The Chinese section of the graveyard was placed in the hands of a large population of Chinese who lived in the Hop Alley section of Denver. The majority of these bodies were then removed and shipped to their homeland in China. However, most of those buried in the cemetery were vagrants, criminals, and paupers. When the majority of bodies remained unclaimed, the city of Denver awarded a contract to undertaker E.P. McGovern to remove the remains in 1893. McGovern was to provide a fresh box for each body and transfer it to the Riverside Cemetery at a cost of $1.90 each. The gruesome work began on March 14, 1893, before an audience of curiosity seekers and reporters for the first few days, the transfers were orderly. However, the unscrupulous McGovern soon found a way to make an even larger profit on the contract. Rather than utilizing full-size coffins for adults, he used child-size caskets that were just one foot by three and a half feet long. He hacked the bodies up. McGovern sometimes used as many as three caskets for just one body. In their haste, Body parts and bones were literally strewn everywhere, and in the disorganized mess, souvenir hunters began to loot the open graves and coffins. When the Denver Republican got hold of the story, its headline proclaimed on March 19, 1893, quote, The Work of Ghouls. The article described, in detail, McGovern's practice of hacking up what were sometimes intact remains of the dead and stuffing them into undersized boxes. Quote, the line of desecrated graves at the southern boundary of the cemetery sickened and horrified everybody by the appearance they presented. Around their edges were piled broken coffins, rent and tattered shrouds, and fragments of clothing that had been torn from the dead bodies. All were trampled into the ground by the footsteps of grave diggers like rejected junk. End quote. 
The health commissioner immediately began an investigation into the matter, and as a result, Mayor Rogers terminated the contract. Afterwards, the city built a temporary wooden fence around the cemetery, leaving it in shambles with open holes still displayed. Though numerous graves had not yet been reached and others sat exposed, a new contract for moving the bodies was never awarded. In 1894, grading and leveling began in preparation for the park, though several of the open graves wouldn't be filled in until 1902, when shrubs were planted in many of them. The park was finally completed in 1907, without ever having moved the rest of the bodies. Two years later, in 1909, Gladys Cheeseman Evans and her mother, Mrs. Walter S. Cheeseman, donated a marble pavilion in memory of Denver pioneer Walter Cheeseman. The donation was conditionally that part of the parks be designated as Cheeseman Park, and so it was. The pavilion and park still stand today. Today, an estimated 2,000 bodies remain buried in Cheeseman Park. It comes as no surprise that the spirits of those forgotten, looted, and sometimes desecrated continue to make their presence known not only at Cheeseman Park, but in neighborhoods that surround it. Almost immediately, when the bodies began to be removed from the cemetery in 1893, strange things began to happen. One of the first reports was when a gravedigger named Jim Astor felt a ghost land upon his shoulders. Astor, who had been looting the graves as he moved the bodies, immediately ran from the graveyard and failed to return to work the next day. Those living in residences surrounding the graveyard began to report sad and confused-looking spirits knocking at their doors and windows, as well as the sounds of moans coming from the still-yet-open graves. Spielberg was fascinated by the story, and the stories that continued about the now-infamous Haunted Park. He transplanted the idea to California, into the suburbs of expanding California in the 1980s. Together with his knowledge of ghosts and the paranormal, he began writing a script. At first, he wanted someone else to write the script, and he would direct, but those plans fell through. Stephen King rejected the offer, and so Spielberg began writing with screenwriters and producers, Michael Graves and Mark Victor, who were also fascinated by the paranormal and UFOs. And due to the contract that stipulated that Spielberg needed his full attention on another film, E.T., the extraterrestrial. Spielberg could not direct the film, and so he contracted Toby Hooper of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre to direct his new movie. Toby was consulted on the script, and he brought intensity to the writing process. Originally, Carol Ann, the little girl who famously says, here. was going to get killed in the first act, and then haunt the house in the second. They eventually decided this was too dark and opted to have her kidnapped by the ghosts. In fact, eventually, so many of Toby Hooper's dark elements were removed because Spielberg wanted a PG rating so that the film could run as a double feature in theaters with the concurrently released E.T. the Extraterrestrial. So much so that there were no deaths at all in the final movie and only a couple light injuries. Pre-production began, sets located and acquired, and actors began filling the roles. Spielberg wanted generally unknown actors to play the parts because he wanted audiences to feel as if this family could be them, or at the very least, someone they may know. 
Principal filming began May 11th and wrapped on August in 1981. And during that filming, some unusual events and circumstances sparked what we know today as the Poltergeist Curse. Now, some people don't believe in curses, and others, well, they may have Lady Luck by their side. And there is no better place to encounter Lady Luck than at MYB Casino. That is M as in money, Y as in yes, and B as in bravo. MYBCasino.ag is one of the world's top online casinos, and if you want to experience true Vegas-style blackjack or roulette, from the comfort of your own home, now is the time. Because MYB Casino is offering our podcast listeners a 200% welcome bonus, starting you off with a huge bankroll. Just enter the promo code UNSOLVED. And best of all, when you win, they have a lightning-fast payout system that guarantees that you'll get your cash quick. For those who want a personal touch, They even have a live dealer casino with real people dealing out the cards. Whether you like blackjack, roulette, slots, or any other game, MYB Casino has it all. Not to mention, you can play all of their games on your cell phone, iPad, or tablet computer. It's entirely up to you. You can play from anywhere. So if you want to get in on the action, go to mybcasino.ag and sign up with them using promo code UNSOLVED to ensure that you're eligible for all of the future promotions and bonuses. Visit Vegas from your couch and try them out today. You play, you win, you get paid. Again, that's M as in money, Y as in yes, and B as in bravo, mybcasino.ag, with your special code UNSOLVED. A link will also be available in our show notes and on our Facebook page. Now, back to the podcast. The curse is said to have began with the props and effects department. Constructing realistic skeletons was so costly and time-consuming that at the time, the special effects department opted to purchase real skeletons from the university science department to use in the now infamous swimming pool scene. 20 skeletons were purchased and dressed in rotten clothing and processed with makeup and fake hair. It was gruesome, but effective. None of the actors were told of the use of the real skeletons until after filming. But desecrating the dead was not the only issues on set. The swimming pool scene was essentially one of the most dangerous scenes filmed. Actress Jo Beth Williams said she wouldn't do it when she arrived on set. The lighting crew and all the electrical were near the ground, soaked in water and mud, and the lights hung and were wired in such a way that they just hung precariously over the water-filled, dugged-out swimming pool. In order to comfort her, director Steven Spielberg crawled in the pool with her to shoot the scene. Spielberg told her, Now, if a light falls in, we will both fry. The strategy worked, and Williams got into the pool. Joe Beth said she felt differently after filming this scene and said that every day when she returned home after filming, she would find her picture frames in her house all tilted askew. She would straighten them, return to filming, only to return to find them all crooked again. She also noted that she felt a strange feeling each time she was on set. She did not expand on this and said it was something personal. 
Author James Kahn was hired mid-production to write the novelization of the film. Horror books were huge in the early 1980s, and executives wanted to squeeze every penny out of the production. James Kahn says he had some interesting developments while writing the novel. As he finished writing the last chapter, a freak storm brewed outside and lightning flashed and struck the building he was working in. Kahn says, The facing on the air conditioning unit blew off, flew across the room, and hit me in the back. After about a half a minute or a minute, the lights flickered and went on. And then all the video games in the room started playing themselves. Back on set, the next film scene nearly resulted in instant tragedy. Oliver Robbins, who played the middle Freeling child Robbie, was reportedly attacked on set by a mechanical clown. In a scene in which he was supposed to be struggling with the creepy clown, it malfunctioned and actually choked him. Because the scene was meant to show a struggle, many members of the cast allegedly thought his reaction was good acting, and it wasn't until he began to turn blue that they intervened. Robbins survived the attack and is alive and well today, and he doesn't believe in the poltergeist curse. But according to legend, the poltergeist curse took its first victim soon after the film was released. Dominique Dunn, who played Dana, the older sister of the Freeling family, was the first of the cast to die in an untimely fashion. In 1981, Dunn began a relationship with John Sweeney, a chef at a trendy L.A. restaurant. Sweeney was, according to court testimony, an abusive, jealous, and angry man. The couple fought constantly, with Sweeney reportedly beating Dunn savagely. After a particularly violent row, where Sweeney reportedly strangled Dunn and jumped on her car hood to keep her from leaving, Dunn moved out and ended their relationship. But Sweeney didn't take no for an answer. According to police reports on the night before Halloween 1982, the chef carved a chocolate mask of Dominique's face and delivered it to her door. After a brief argument, Sweeney strangled Dunn into unconsciousness. When the police arrived, Sweeney told them, I killed my girlfriend and I tried to kill myself. But he was wrong. The attempted murder only ended up strangling Dunn into a coma. She spent four days in a coma, teetering between life and death, before finally succumbing on November 4th, 1982. Sweeney served less than four years for the crime. After prison, he changed his name and has presumably been living as a free man ever since. Poltergeist was released in theaters June 2nd of 1982 and was an instant success. Audiences enjoyed the storyline, the special effects, and the realistic sets and portrayal of characters. The PG rating also had families seeing a horror movie together for the first time in theaters. Poltergeist was a success, and executives at MGM demanded a sequel, and in 1983, both screenwriters, Michael Grace and Mark Victor, were hired. The original cast was contracted to portray the Freeling family once again. Absent, however, was Spielberg and Hooper.
Let me in. Where the hell? Won't you leave us alone? Filming for Poltergeist, The Other Side, began on May 13th, 1985, and immediately things just did not feel right. Concerned about the use of real skeletons on the set of the first film, Native American actor Will Sampson performed an exorcism on set of the second film. According to Williams, he went to the set late at night by himself to do it. The next day, the cast supposedly felt relieved. Production continued on, but there was always something eerie about being on set even though there were no real skeletons used and an actual cleansing ceremony was performed. Actress Heather O'Rourke, who played Carol Ann, was noticeably emotional on set. When she first saw fellow actor Julian Beck, she was so frightened by him that she burst out into tears and ran off set. Other crew and actors were also irritable and emotional while on set. There would be harsh words, arguments, and outbursts for no good reasons. Filming had wrapped up, however, and the film was set for an early summer release. Julian Beck, the actor that frightened Heather O'Rourke, however, did not see the final cut. According to legend, he was struck down by the poltergeist curse. However, Julian Beck was very ill before he accepted the role as Kane in the movie. He was diagnosed months previous with stomach cancer and sadly passed away in September of 1985. Poltergeist 2 would be released on May 23, 1986 and was a modest success. The home box office of the movie rentals and purchased VHS tapes made the executives a lot of money and so they believed that there was still life left in the Poltergeist franchise. And Poltergeist 3 was set to be produced. You want to help me make breakfast? Yeah, I'd love to. Come on. Okay, we got eggs, sausage, bacon. What'll it be? Toastums. Oh, no. I cook, you set the table. How's Carol Ann? I don't know. How would you feel if some quack told you you had supernatural powers? How do you feel deep down inside? One word. I don't know. Well, lonely, maybe. Count 
to three, Carol, ma'am. And when I snap my fingers, you will awaken. One, two, three. Poltergeist 3's main theme was to take the ghosts and the evils of the suburban home and transplant it into the big city. Heather O'Rourke revived the character as Carol Ann, and Zelda Rubinstein revived her role from Poltergeist 2 as the psychic medium, Tangina. Everyone else was replaced with different actors. Executives also changed up the screenwriters and directors once more. And as screen critics and audiences agree, this final chapter in the franchise was less than desirable. The Poltergeist curse was about to become legendary soon after the film was released. But according to the cast, some strange things began happening on set. There were an extraordinary amount of electrical problems on set that caused numerous delays, but the most interesting anecdote concerns Zelda Rubenstein. During filming, she was taken aback that for some reason her dog was on set. It came up to her, wagged its tail, and licked at her hand. After a few pets, Zelda's dog walked away, turned, looked at her, and then simply vanished. Zelda then got a call an hour later from her mother that told her that Zelda's dog had passed away a few hours ago. There was a strange feeling being on set, Zelda said. We were close to the other side. But how very true that statement was at the time was not known to Zelda. Heather O'Rourke, who played Carol Ann in the film franchise, is often the most famous victim of the poltergeist curse. In January 1987, Heather began to have flu-like symptoms and her legs and feet swelled. She was taken to Kaiser Hospital and they confirmed it was only the flu, but when symptoms continued, they diagnosed her as having Crohn's disease, a chronic inflammation of the intestine. She was on medication throughout the filming of Poltergeist 3 and her cheeks were puffy in some scenes. When filming was completed in June, Heather and her family went on a road trip from Chicago to New Orleans to Orlando and all the way back to San Diego where they lived at the time. Heather was well until January 31st, 1988, Super Bowl Sunday. She was unable to keep anything in her stomach and crawled into bed with her parents that night, saying that she did not feel well. The next morning, February 1st, sitting at the breakfast table, she couldn't swallow her toast or her Gatorade. Her mother noticed her fingers were blue and her hands were cold. Kathleen called the doctors and was getting ready to put her clothes on when Heather fainted on the kitchen floor. When the paramedics came in, Heather insisted that she was really okay and was worried about missing school that day. In the ambulance, Heather suffered cardiac arrest and died on the operating table at 2.43 p.m. at the tender age of 12. O'Rourke's character was the one most frequently targeted by the film's franchise's many spirits and demons. Though she wasn't the first person to die during Poltergeist's lifespan, the unexpected, shocking nature of her death made many believe that the curse was real. And then people started noting the unusual amounts of illness and deaths, increasing the mythology of the cursed. But before we dive into the deep end, let us take a moment to tell you about our sponsor. Let me tell you about an app that will help you find the cheapest airline tickets. 
It has over 1 million downloads so far and has a 4.3 out of 5 star rating on Google Play and 5 out of 5 on Apple. Simply go to www.experiencethis360.com and click the link at the top that says Best Travel Deals. Then drop down to Cheapest Airline Ticket Mobile App. The app is free and you'll find savings of up to 70%. Again, that is www.experiencethis360.com. Now back to the podcast. Will Sampson, who played Native American shaman Taylor in the second Poltergeist film, died on June 3, 1987, just after the film's release. Sampson had a condition called scleroderma, which caused him to lose weight rapidly and become malnourished. His poor health caused a heart and lung transplant to be riskier than usual, and Samson died after surgery. Richard Lawson, who played Ryan in the original Poltergeist film, is believed to be another victim of the curse. Lawson is still alive and well, but in 1992, he boarded flight 405 to Cleveland. Many passengers on board reported feeling uneasy before the flight, including Lawson, who was bumped up to first class after a flight attendant recognized him. The plane crashed into a bay after a failed takeoff, with its 51 passengers trapped in their seats. 27 of those people died, including someone in Lawson's original assigned row. If he hadn't been bumped up to first class, it might have been him in that seat instead. Lou Perryman, who had a bit part in the original Poltergeist, playing Pugsley, a construction worker, may have encountered the darker side of the curse. In 2009, the 67-year-old actor was chilling at his home in Austin, Texas, when Seth Tatum knocked on his door. According to witnesses, the two had a brief conversation and went inside together. Seth left the house alone. When police searched his residence, they found Perryman dead, his body hacked apart with an axe. Tatum seems to have chosen Perryman completely at random. In the midst of some kind of psychotic fatigue, Tatum left his house and wandered aimlessly for three miles before knocking on Perryman's door. Of all the thousands of doors he passed on his mad journey, why did Tatum pick that particular one to knock on? Maybe coincidence. Maybe something darker. Zelda Rubinstein is said to be a victim of the curse as well. She died on January 27, 2010, suffering from a heart attack and complication from kidney and lung failure. She was 76 years old. In 2015, a reboot of the original film was released, and again, the curse developed into something more tragic. Marketing. The Poltergeist curse did not end with the original three films. Joe Keenan, who directed the 2015 franchise reboot, was actually looking for the curse. According to Keenan, he found it. The film was plagued by strange equipment failures on one plot of land, and the director also reported that the house he stayed in while filming was haunted by a female figure dressed in a black dress. The figure, he said, would follow him to and from set, though it thankfully did not return to Los Angeles with him when filming Wrapped. Can't wait. This is why I showed up. How great he says. You go through life looking for a curse and here's the opportunity to step right into one and make it a movie. I have been trying to catch a curse since I was like 11. I honest to God rented a house that was haunted. 
I have never been in a haunted house, but there was a woman ghost in the house I rented while I made this movie. She liked me, so there was never a problem. I was conscientious of it. There was a third floor that was locked and we did not have the key to it. But as we walked past it, my daughter would casually point and say, that's where the ghost lives. And I believed her. I felt her the whole time. And people outside would ask sometimes if there was a woman staying in the house. They would see a woman in a black dress going up and down the stairs. It was super crazy and real. If Gil Keenan was looking for the curse, he found it. Poltergeist was a failed attempt at rebooting a classic. It prefers jump scares over real dread and horror, and critics and audiences agreed. The movie deserved a curse. It was a box office failure. The Poltergeist curse, however we imagine it, is part of movie lore. You ultimately believe there is something strange going on, or you believe there are simply coincidences. Take note of these, though. The television broadcast in the original Poltergeist movie signs off at 2.37 a.m. A strange time to sign off at, since most broadcasts at the time signed off on the hour or half hour after a program had ended for the night. The 2.37 sign-off may be related to Spielberg's original choice of whom he wanted to write the script. Stephen King, who infamously wrote The Shining and in the movie portrayal The Haunted Room, is room 237. Robbie has a poster in his room for Super Bowl 21, which would not take place for another six years in San Diego. Heather O'Rourke died in San Diego the day after Super Bowl Sunday of 1988, which was played in San Diego as well. Heather O'Rourke, who played the little girl Carol Ann, and Dominique Dunn, who played the teenage daughter, are both buried in the same cemetery, Westwood Memorial Park in Los Angeles. Coincidences are something part of a larger picture. In our next episode, we will dive into more movie-based curses including those of The Omen, Rosemary's Baby, and an unreleased film so cursed that is said to have caused the deaths of four prominent comedic actors, as well as their friends and colleagues. Like to travel? I'd like to introduce you to another podcast about travel. It includes destination guides and tips and tricks on travel. The following is a podcast episode about San Diego. If you like what you hear, you can head over to www.experiencethis360.com and listen online, or subscribe on your favorite podcast directory or player. Just search Experience This 360 Travel. Enjoy. Hi, this is John from ExperienceThis360.com, and welcome to the Experience This 360 podcast where we provide travel destination guides, tips and tricks, travel news, and information you can use to make your travels more enjoyable, exciting, and affordable. Welcome to episode one, the San Diego Destination Guide. This guide will span over seven episodes. We broke them up to allow you to earmark each episode for easier reference. We chose San Diego 
as our first destination guide because it offers so much and we enjoyed visiting this location and plan to do so many more times in the future. San Diego's slogan is, happiness is calling. And certainly, a vacation in San Diego creates a lot of happiness. Happy weather, happy fun, happy food, happy drinks, happy experiences, and a lot of happy memories. Whether you are a family looking for a great family getaway, a solo traveler looking for adventure, or an elderly couple looking to relax, San Diego delivers. In these upcoming episodes, we will explore the San Diego area, provide you with ideas of fantastic locations, give some insight into hotels, and provide some inside tips. Later on, we'll give you a sample itinerary if you are spending just a day in San Diego, and also a whole week. What to do if you are on a family vacation or a couple's vacation. So let's start exploring San Diego. San Diego is divided into various neighborhood areas, the coastal area, the downtown urban area, the inland valley, mountain and desert area, and the Baja California area. And with so much to do and see in San Diego, you probably want to visit many of them, if not all. And because San Diego is a coastal city situated right on the Pacific, with perfect weather conditions year-round, let's start off by exploring the coastal areas first. This first episode, we will explore La Jolla, California, one of the many places we recommend you visit while traveling to San Diego. With spectacular coastline boasting astounding views, it's no surprise that La Jolla is one of the most popular beach destinations in America. Surrounded on three sides by the sea, and backed by the steep slopes of Mount Soledad, La Jolla's natural beauty, abundance of activities, and upscale village lifestyle ensure that it lives up to its nickname as the Jewel of San Diego. La Jolla's biggest draw for locals and visitors alike are the amazing beaches. During the summer and autumn months, the surf is relatively gentle, with warm waters in the 70s. Swimmers, snorkelers, scuba divers, kayakers, and others enjoy the golden sands of La Jolla shores, the cove, and wind and sea. Consistently voted one of the top beach destinations in the world, La Jolla offers a wide range of accommodations from luxurious hotels to casual coastal retreats, along with museums and art galleries, one-of-a-kind boutiques, great restaurants, and a slew of outdoor activities. It is also home to the famous Torrey Pines Golf Course and the Lodge at Torrey Pines. The scenic cliff area offers well-groomed hiking trails with spectacular views and world-class golf. At Torrey Pines Glider Port, you can soar out over the beach cliffs on a hang glider and sometimes see migrating whales near the shoreline. As you can tell, there is a lot going on in La Jolla, so let's focus in on some of the best activities. We've already mentioned the fantastic beachfront, and that should be on your list of things to do in San Diego. But even the beachfront can be broken down into various areas depending on your interests. The La Jolla coastline varies dramatically from 300-foot sea cliffs to rocky reefs to secluded coves and wide golden sandy shores. Although La Jolla's picturesque coastal landscape makes portions of the beach inaccessible, 
The views are beyond spectacular as waves and white water break onto rocky outcroppings, as seals and sea lions gracefully navigate safe landing onto their protective cove. At the northernmost point of La Jolla is Torrey Pines City Beach. Fortified by 300-foot sea cliffs, a nature walk along the bluffs through native vegetation, including the signature Torrey Pines, leads to endless views of the Pacific. Here you'll find long stretches of beach ideal for sunbathing and family fun adjacent to a large parking area. The parking area fills up very quickly, so it is important to arrive early. Further south is home to famed Black's Beach. Although difficult and hazardous to access, this spot is a favorite among local surfers and bodyboarders, and those who prefer to enjoy the surf and sand in the buff, despite California law prohibiting public nudity. La Jolla Cove is a small, deep water bay flanked by the sea caves, accessible to adventurers in kayaks and on foot, depending on the tides. The beach itself is small, but its usually tame waters are popular with swimmers and snorkelers hoping to see local natives like the bright orange Garibaldi fish and other marine life. The cove is easily accessible via maintained stairs and walkways, sitting just below a large grass park with bathrooms, showers, picnic tables, a paved pedestrian walkway, and several public gazebos. There are various outfitters here that can take you into the cove and the sea caves via kayak and paddle boards. Prices are very consistent among outfitters, so finding the best rated ones along with times that work for you will probably be your only concerns. Walking distance from La Jolla Cove is a small cove protected by a concrete breakwater wall. It was originally built as a safe swimming area for children, but was claimed long ago by seals and sea lions who beached themselves on the sand with their young. Although now closed for swimming, the children's pool offers a crowd-pleasing and often amusing view of these adorable and often vocal seals and sea lions. Continuing south, you'll arrive at the Hospitals, which is a great reef, but a poor beach. At low tide, there are wonderful tide pools for exploring along the coast here. The conditions don't often cooperate, but when they do, it's the best dive site in town, with dramatic undersea arches and ledges, often full of lobster. At the south end by the gazebo is the hospital's surf spot, the northernmost point of La Jolla's reef breaks. Wind and Sea is next if we continue going southbound. Wind and Sea is a popular family beach with access to rich tide pools during low tides. It's also a well-known surf spot, attracting local crowds and its share of competition for waves. Swimming and bodyboarding are best on the south half of this beach. As we mentioned earlier, because of the spectacular beachfront and the slew of activities, this is a very popular destination. Parking is a premium. However, with a little planning, you can make this a day trip that does not include a parking stress. Most visitors arrive around noon and leave the beach area at about 4 p.m. That means if you arrive early, you'll get good parking. And if you arrive later, you'll get to see the fantastic sunset stretch across the Pacific Ocean. There is also street parking in downtown La Jolla if you don't mind walking about. And this might be your best option if you are also taking in the downtown scene. 
But first, make sure to grab some good walking shoes. From original vintage apparel to high-end urban furnishings for your home, you'll love all the hidden treasures La Jolla shops hold. Located right next to the beach in downtown La Jolla, this area is known for its mix of unique boutique shops, mall stores, and higher-end establishments like Cartier. You can window shop for fun. The cute storefronts and picturesque sidewalks make for a lovely stroll. Or dive right in to purchase your treasures. Prospect Street boasts several different kinds of shops, while Girard is home to trendy, upscale boutiques like Francesca's. And if you've built up an appetite from swimming, snorkeling, kayaking, and shopping, you will certainly want to grab a bite to eat, and La Jolla has some fantastic food and drink options. From burgers to Parisian foods, you can find so many options that sometimes the choice itself is heartbreaking. But for me, you are in La Jolla, one of the most scenic locations in California, if not the United States. And with that, you want to enjoy the view. One of our favorite spots is the Cliffhanger Cafe. The Cliffhanger Cafe is located high atop the sea cliffs of Torrey Pines. Diners are treated to a breathtaking view of the Pacific Ocean as it spans from the beach 350 feet below all the way to the horizon. Dolphins and whales can be seen from the cliffs. Paragliders, hang gliders, RC gliders, and more all launch right in front of you on the outdoor dining area, making this a truly unique dining experience. And in such a high-end location, the prices are very reasonable. From breakfast to soups, salads, and sandwiches, the food is good, and it won't bleed your wallet. If you are looking for something a bit more upscale and less casual, but still want to have an amazing atmosphere, I recommend the Marine Room. It's situated right on, literally right on the best beach, and there is nothing like sitting in a restaurant looking out the window and seeing massive waves crash against the glass during high tide. It is absolutely stunning, and we'll provide a photo of this spectacular location on our online guide as well as on our Facebook page. Besides the stunning visuals, you will also be excited to dive into their menu. They serve fresh seafoods, locally sourced meats, vegetables, and fruits, and their desserts have won numerous awards. As this is such a unique location, it is best to call days ahead and make your reservation. And if you want to enjoy the sunset without the touristy crowds, I recommend a little place tucked away on Prospect Street that still offers fantastic views. Look for Wee Olive and Wine Bar. They have a terrific patio in the rear with an ocean view. It's rarely crowded and makes for a relaxing spot to enjoy a glass of wine while you watch the sunset. And if you aren't into exotic olive oils or wine, don't worry. They also have a fantastic craft beer selection to enjoy. At this time, I would like to take a quick break to tell you about a section on our website that allows you to search for the cheapest flights. The online application is available on our website for Apple or Android devices, and it also works directly in your browser. What the app does is it takes over 700 airlines and travel agencies, including booking sites like Expedia and Booking.com, and allows you to compare all at once in one screen, saving time and money. It basically finds the cheapest price anywhere. There are no additional fees and the app is free to use. 
what you see on the screen is the exact amount you will pay. This isn't a separate booking app. It is a comprehensive yet easy way to do flight searches. Think of it as a cheap flight search engine. It simply finds the best deal for you. Visit www.experiencethis360.com. At the top links, you will see a link called Best Travel Deals. Click that or use the drop-down menu to get to a specific area. Links will also be available in the show notes. Now, back to the podcast. If you still can't get enough of La Jolla, it still has a lot more to offer. The La Jolla branch of the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego has been bringing folks onto its Prospect Street location since 1950. It constantly rotates exhibits to keep things fresh. After spending time walking around the interior and taking in the galleries, make sure to get back outside into the sun to take in the ocean view that lays in front of the museum. Then head to the museum's garden to see some art in green form. If you've been inspired to do some art of your own, bring a sketch pad and let your artistic side take over. Now, you may find this odd, but the next place I would recommend to go is the library. And like all libraries, there is no admission price, but the experience is worth it. The Athenaeum Music and Arts Library is a Spanish Renaissance-style building built in 1921. The exterior is as beautiful today as then, and the interior has been refurbished since that time. It's just a great little stop for those of us who like architecture and history. Near the library is also the Historical Society Museum and the Map and Atlas Museum. But for many, the Birch Aquarium at Scripps is at the top of the must-see list. Located just minutes from La Jolla in the middle of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography is the Birch Aquarium, which boasts over 5,000 fish in 60-plus habitats, plus a museum featuring cutting-edge research from Scripps Institution of Oceanography, University of California, San Diego. Once again, you can take in spectacular panoramic ocean views, but also get hands-on with the interactive activities, see a feeding, and dive deeper into the world under, in, and above the oceans. There is shark feeding, sea turtle feeding, and even whale watching adventures available throughout the day. This is a very popular family destination. However, there is ample parking and exhibits give enough room for all to enjoy. This is a very popular family destination. However, there is ample parking and exhibits give enough room for all to enjoy. Just remember that they don't allow RVs or cars with trailers and even buses to park on their lot. If your feet are not tired just yet, the next place to visit is the Torrey Pines State Natural Reserve, which boasts amazing ocean views as well as America's rarest pine trees. Torrey Pines State Natural Reserve is home to approximately 3,000 of the U.S.'s rarest pine tree, the Pinus torriana, which only grows in San Diego and on the Santa Rosa Island off the coast near Santa Barbara. The park preserves not only the trees, but also one of the last great salt marshes and waterfowl areas in Southern California. The reserve is located on the cliffs above Torrey Pines State Beach and offers over 1,750 acres of protected wildlands to be explored. With both easy, family-friendly paths and more advanced trails, 
the park provides a great hiking experience for all levels. Your first stop here should be the Visitor Center, commissioned in 1922 by Ellen Browning Scripps. This Pueblo-style structure was originally a restaurant called Torrey Pines Lodge, but now it offers advice on trails and guided tours. Parking at the Visitor Center location varies from $10 to $20, but if you park below on Highway 101 and the lower parking lots and enter via the staircase, it's free. But be warned, the staircase can take a lot out of those in less than perfect physical condition. There is no place to buy food or water in the park and you are encouraged to bring your own. Guides recommend that you stay on the trails as rattlesnakes have been known to reside in this park. And if all this has finally tuckered you out and you need a place to put your feet up, or if La Jolla is your home base, then there are a lot of options to rest and stay right in the jewel of California. Luxury accommodations are plentiful, but there are some budget-friendly and family-oriented options as well. For luxury hotels, we recommend La Valencia, the Pacific Terrace, and the Hilton La Jolla Torrey Pines. As these are luxury hotels, we can only find minor discounts on experience this 360s hotel deal finder. The savings were around 5%, but with the savings involved, that may be a good breakfast or lunch that you didn't have to pay for. As for family-oriented hotels, our recommendations are the La Jolla Travel Lodge, the Sheridan La Jolla, and the Ocean Park Inn. For budget-minded travelers, there is nearby California Suites, the Pleasant Inn, and La Jolla Biltmore Hotel. For those interested in something romantic or unique, we would recommend staying at a guest house, such as the Jewel above La Jolla Shore and Marine Street Beach House. Remember, however, these properties are in high demand, so it's best to check availability and plan way, way ahead. If you aren't staying in La Jolla, note that it is very accessible from anywhere in San Diego. There are various routes to get into the seaside city, but you can also take public transportation or a taxi from any location. It is about a half hour from downtown, and taxi should cost around $25 each way. Most people that visit San Diego who fly in, however, rent a car. Car rentals can be found at the airport or various outlets around the city. Your best bet is to rent a car ahead of time, saving you the time and the money. If you visit San Diego, make sure La Jolla is on your must-do list. You can spend an entire day here and even settle down for a few. There is certainly a lot to see and experience and nothing can match the views. On our next episode on San Diego, we will continue with the coastal neighborhoods of Mission Bay and the Beaches, Point Loma Peninsula, the North County, Coronado, and South Bay. Thank you for listening to the Experience This 360 podcast. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite podcast directory. If you haven't already done so, visit our website at www.experiencethis360.com where you will find online destination guides and travel articles, as well as widgets and apps that allow you to save the most on flights, hotels, car rentals, airport transfers, taxis, airport parking, and much more. We are also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. So like and follow us there so you never miss an update or travel opportunity. Until next time, happy travels.